What we call 1 Samuel is actually half of one Hebrew book that is simply entitled Samuel. This was first divided when the Hebrew Bible was officially translated into Greek, a translation that is called the Septuagint, which is Septua is like 70 because there were 70 scholars that translated it. And at that time, as far as we can tell, that these books were sized according to what could fit on a standard scroll or something approximating that. So the single book was broken into two parts, and that's not a, a bad or negative thing. All the words were still there, but that's when it first began to go as First or Second Samuel. So we're going to get into all of our introductory material today for First Samuel. When we hit Second Samuel, all those same things are going to apply. So let's dive right into this. The name of the book Samuel is named for the first major character we're going to meet in this book, who is, of course, Samuel. And traditionally, the prophet Samuel is the author of the book of 1 Samuel, the book that bears his name. And this is basically the universal tradition of the Hebrews and then the Christians as well. And there's no reason to doubt that 1 Samuel wrote a good portion of this book. However, the story of 1 and 2 Samuel extends beyond the death of the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1, Samuel the prophet is going to die and be buried. So now you have the rest of that book and all of 2 Samuel. So just practically, he could not have written the whole thing. So then who would have contributed to the rest of it? Well, we actually have a couple examples in the Bible of other authors that were writing about this same time that could have been brought together either as the final writer, the final author, or whose writings were used to help complete the book. First Chronicles 29, 29 mentions that Samuel kept records of his ministry, that Nathan the prophet kept records of his ministry. You remember Nathan was the one that accused David about Bathsheba. And then Gad, the prophet, or the seer he's called. Gad is another prophet we're going to meet in the book of 2 Samuel, that he kept records as well. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18 is going to make reference to the book of Jasher or Yashar. We don't have the book of Jasher, but it's referenced several times in the Old Testament and was probably used as a source for those that were writing these things down. So we have Samuel writing about his ministry, Nathan writing about his, Gad writing about his. Some of the political matters would have been drawn probably from the book of Jasher, whatever that was. And the question becomes, all right, when was this finished? When was the book finished being written? I would say it started during the time of Samuel. But chapter 27, verse 6 of this book that we're going to read mentions a geographical point. It talks about the town of Ziklag. And it's going to say, Ziklag became a city of the kings of Judah until this day. Now that little until this day is a very important time marker. So whenever the book was finished, Ziklag was still a possession of the kings of Judah. That tells us a few important things. Number one, this was during the divided kingdom because there was no reference to the kings of Judah for the reign of David, Solomon, and then the beginning of Solomon's son's reign. It was the united kingdom of Israel. And then under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the kingdom divided. We'll read about this in 1 Kings. And you had the kingdom of Israel or Samaria in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. So when he says this city has been a possession of the kings of Judah to this day, that tells us it happened during the time of the exile or during the time of the divided kingdom before the exile happened. That, that, I think, is a pretty good guess for when the book of First and Second Samuel, all one really, was completed. It is likely during the time of the kings before 
they were uh, exiled by Babylon and by Assyria in the north. So that's, that's the, the history of the book and how it took its final form. You'll notice as you read the book, and in fact most books of the Bible, it doesn't give us an author. It doesn't tell us in the, this book, this is the writing of Samuel. Now, some other books will do that, right? These are the writings of the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever. Samuel doesn't do that. So because it's going to cover events that span a long period of time, it stands to reason that there was an inspired author who we do not know, who under the guidance of the Holy Spirit brought these writings together into the form of the book we have today, which is First and Second Samuel. Now, speaking of the final form of the book of First and Second Samuel, uh, the text of the Hebrew that we have of Samuel is actually not in great shape compared to some of these other books. I mentioned how Ruth is considered one of the best preserved books of the Old Testament in, in that there's really no question about what, what it says. There's no variation in the manuscripts we find. Samuel is not that way. Samuel is actually notorious for having uh, gaps in certain sections. There are places where they noticed, you, you ever be in school and you're copying something down and two sentences end the same way and your eyes just jump down to the next one, you accidentally skip a line? Well, that's called haplography in the, in the textual world. And there are some examples of that in certain copies of Samuel, especially the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is the Hebrew Bible that we use today dates to around 1000 AD, somewhere in there. There were a group of Hebrew scholars called the Masoretes. What they did is they went through the Hebrew text and they added what's called vowel pointing. If you know this, Hebrew does not, is not spelled out with vowels. It's spelled out with only the consonants. This is very common in Semitic languages. But as time went on and the language began to change and fewer and fewer people knew Hebrew, these Masoretic scholars went back and started adding vowel points so that there would be certainty about what the text said. We're in great debt to the Masoretes. But the accusation for a long time, especially related to books of Samuel, were, well, wait a minute. How do we know that this was accurate then? If the copy we're using is from a thousand years after the time of Christ, never mind the events themselves. Well, we had the Septuagint, which I mentioned, which is the official Greek translation, which you're able to compare them. You're able to compare this text to that text. And there are some variations, but for the most part, those can be explained by translation. That you're moving from one translation to the next and uh, you're going to have some differences there. But then when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, I say we, like I was, you know, part of it. I wasn't. <laughs> when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, which was at a, a kind of an Amish Hebrew community in Israel, they were called the Essenes, and this place called Qumran, they had these caves where they discovered all these manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right by the Dead Sea. Well, they discovered copies of the book of Samuel and other Old Testament manuscripts that were way older than the Masoretic text, which is pretty exciting. Now, when you start to compare these things, you start to see, okay, there are some differences. Not major ones. Nothing is going to come out and say that David wasn't the king or anything like that. We're going to see uh, one of them today. The question is, did she offer a three-year-old bull or did she offer three one-year-old bulls? You say to yourself, who cares? Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. But it is good that you know this, that there are variants in the text and there are some that believe maybe there was an older version that the manuscripts were pulling from. But as you look at all these, these details, as we go through, when we come across the major ones, uh, we will address them. In most cases, it's not a matter of us not understanding what it says. It's a matter of folks not quite understanding what it means. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe it should be changed. Maybe it should be something else. But these are not insuperable difficulties. We will address them as they come up. Why do I bring this up to you? Well, because more and more people are online, 
More and more people are reading books about the Old Testament. More and more people are going to school and taking a history of religion class, history of Old Testament class. And I do not want you to be blindsided when somebody says something like, you know that we don't even know what Samuel says, right? They take what is a known, understood difficulty that has been overcome by those in the church, and they talk to you about it like it's something that has completely destroyed the gospel. That's simply not the case. Liberal scholars, I don't mean politically liberal, I mean theologically liberal, always assume, always assume a long evolution of the text of scripture. And when they see textual variants, like the ones I just described, they assign sinister meaning to them, that somebody changed it on purpose because they didn't like what it said. If you ever heard of a guy named Bart Ehrman, this is his whole thing, this is his whole deal, is showing up at like atheist revival meetings and preaching on how you can't trust, the, I don't know if they have those, uh, talking about how you can't trust the New Testament. Well look, these things are known. I've been to school, I've studied them, I read a bunch of very boring books to understand these issues, and the, the simple fact is, none of these things are too difficult for us to understand what the text itself means. That there are challenges as we're doing archaeology and trying to figure them out, but the fact that we have a multitude of witnesses only speaks to the surety of the scriptures that we have. And I also will just throw this out there. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus said he taught those on the road to Emmaus all the things from all the prophets concerning him. By saying all the prophets, Jesus is making reference to the divisions of the Hebrew Bible, right? We have, you know, the Pentateuch and we have the historical books and the prophetic books and the poetic books. They did it a little bit differently. They had a category called the Nevi'im, which means the prophets, okay? And Samuel actually fell in that category. So did Joshua. It's interesting because we put Samuel in the historical books. They put Samuel in the prophetic books because they'd say, well, Samuel was a prophet, dummy. Of course he belongs in the prophetic books. All that matters for us this morning is when Jesus said he preached from all the prophets, Samuel is included in that. What does this mean? Jesus affirmed the book of First and Second Samuel. So you either can disagree with Jesus or you can agree with Jesus. And I, I'm going to do that one, okay? So I just want to, I like to bring these things up because I never want you to come across them and feel blindsided. These things are known about, they have been answered, and there are lots and lots of people that know about all these issues and they still believe in Jesus. I'm one of them, okay? So it's just good to know about that. Well, let's talk about the date of these events here. We just talked about the text itself and how it came about. Probably took its final form during the time of the divided kingdom. But when are these events? Well, we can identify the date of David's kingdom around 1010 BC. And there are ways that we can do that. I'll address it when we get closer. But around 1000 AD, 1010, or 1000 BC, 1010 BC, that's when David became king. According to Acts chapter 13, verse 21, Saul reigned for 40 years. That brings us back to 1050 BC. And we know that Samuel was an old man by the time all these events were taking place. So this means that the book of 1 Samuel is going to begin about 1100 BC. That's when these events start to take place. And we can nail that down pretty closely, which is pretty exciting. Because the closer you get to, of course, modern day, the easier it is to pinpoint specific dates on these things. And then by the time you get to Paul, we can say, like, it was the fall of AD 54. He was in this city, which is pretty special. So this is where we are. This perhaps overlaps with some of the events in the book of Judges, um, but it's not going to address any of those issues. It certainly overlaps with the end of the time of the book of Judges, which we just finished studying on Wednesday. Therefore, this is a few generations after the book of Ruth. 
So you have the, the history of the Old Testament goes Genesis, which is the history of the world. Then the history of the patriarchs going down to Joseph. Exodus brings them out of Egypt into the wilderness. Numbers brings them right up to the promised land. Joshua, they go into the promised land and they con the conquest, they take over the promised land. Judges is about 300 years where they're living in the promised land with no king. They're living according to the theocracy, you might say. God is the one that raises up judges from time to time. Now that 300 year span of judges, Ruth falls in there. Ruth falls in the time of Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and all those people, which is a long stretch of time. And then 1 Samuel probably begins at the tail end of that stretch covered by the time of the Judges. And if you remember the last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You might think that's a very interesting way to end it, that there was no king in Israel. Well, the very next book of the Bible tells us about the ancestry of the one who would become the king of Israel. And 1 Samuel begins telling the story of the rise of the monarchy in Israel. Samuel, the prophet, will be the last of the judges and will anoint both the first king, who is Saul, as well as the true king, who is David. And 1 Samuel is going to cover, as I'm sure you know, the reign of Saul up until his death. 2 Samuel will pick up with the ascension of David to the throne, securing his kingdom, and will end with the death of David and begin to get into the ascension of Solomon as the next king. And 1 Samuel is great. Some of your favorite Bible stories are in this book. This is where we find David and Goliath. This is where we find uh, David hiding in the cave while Saul is chasing him. We have David and Jonathan in here. It's a great book. The one we talked about this morning. We're going to talk about Hannah in just a second. And it's got so much for us to learn, not just about these inspiring stories, which I like inspiring stories. They're great. But it's got a lot to teach us about God's preparation of the kingdom. It's got an awful lot to teach us about leadership and politics. Maybe it's providential that the Lord set us up that we'd be doing that during an election year. But all of this, ultimately, in the big picture of the canon of Scripture, is setting the stage for the arrival of not David, but the son of David, Jesus Christ the King. And as we're studying his works on Wednesday night, it's good for us to study his ancestor and what that teaches us about our Lord Jesus. So that's enough introduction. Let's get into verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll do about a chapter and a half this morning. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. I want to underline that. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, more on them later, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah is a really interesting guy and perhaps a, a good 
object lesson for us here, but we begin by zooming in on the house of this man, Elkanah. Knowing all that we know about that introduction, that eventually we're going to be talking about the kingdom of Israel, we just look into the house of this man, who is of the tribe of Ephraim, and his wives, Hannah, his wife, and Penina. You see there when it says, verse 2, he had two wives. There are people that say things like, well, the Bible has polygamy in it, and it never explicitly forbids it. You're right, but what it does show us is that there is never a positive example of somebody having more than one wife. I defy you to find one where it worked out. When it says he had two wives, you go, oh, what a blessing. We know, ah, here comes trouble. And that's exactly right. It's never a recipe for marital bliss to have two wives, just in case you were wondering about that. We have Hannah and Penina. And Hannah did not have children, but Penina did. So I want to paint a picture for you here. In all likelihood, because Elkanah loved his wife Hannah, but she was unable to have children, he probably married Penina for that reason. It doesn't seem from his character here that he was just a hound dog that wanted as many ladies as he could get. Looks like he marries this woman that he loves. They wait, they wait, but they're not having any children. So he does something that was culturally acceptable at the time and not even explicitly forbidden in Scripture, as I said. He marries somebody else so that she can start having children for him. This is why he's so kind to her. And now, verse 8 is such a knucklehead guy thing to say, you know, but you do need to read this as more sympathetic because it's not so much that Hannah is angry at him here. She's angry and ashamed of herself. And what he's trying to tell her by giving her the double portion and encouraging her not to weep is, I know you can't have any children, sweetheart, but I love you. I'm, tr I'm doing my best to be as good to you as I possibly can. But still, this would have shamed her. Everybody would have known why Elkanah had two wives. He married her so that he could have kids. Now, you also need to take a look at how Penina would have felt here. So what am I then, she thinks to herself. I was brought in late so that I could have babies, and we all know that he loves her more. So what exactly am I doing around here? And she begins to make Hannah miserable through her words. She starts to take the one advantage she has over Hannah and make sure she never, ever forgets it. That you, you were chosen first, but I was chosen last. Look at all these children I have. You don't have any. That's, he, he might treat you nicer, but that's only because he knows who the real queen is around here. And Hannah's husband is unable to console her, as we might expect. Life is hard. Things happen in life that are nobody's fault. Nobody's fault that Hannah was barren. It, was, it wasn't. And there are things that are going to happen to you that are nobody's fault. In fact, Jesus himself teaches us that sometimes, because we live in a fallen, cursed world, hard things happen. And it's not the work of the devil. It's not the work of God. It's not the work of any person. That's just life. These things happen. However, when we're going through something like that, we might be able to bear it, but other people can make hard times so much worse. Any amens on that? Other people can make hard times so much worse. We see from Psalm 22, which is a psalm of David and would be taken up by Jesus on the cross, actually, verses 6 and 7 says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. You ever feel that way? It's okay to feel that way. David felt that way. Jesus felt that way. They mock me. They make mouths at me. That's rather childish, isn't it? What is it to make a mouth at somebody? 
You've seen your kid, uh, right? I'm making a mouth at you. Wagging their heads. They watch you coming by. Yeah, don't be like her. Don't be like him. Mocked, scorned, despised. I'm not, a, I'm not a man. I'm a worm. Look at how everybody treats me. It's one thing to know your shortcomings or your difficulties and struggles. It's another thing to be reminded about them by somebody else and to be humiliated for them. There are people that do this. I hope none of them are in this room right now. Where rather than helping somebody up when they're down, we kick them when they're down. Maybe it's because it's somebody who is your rival, as it said. Penina and Hannah are rivals for the affections of their husband. And she decides to make her miserable. And this can happen from all, any, any quarter. It can happen from friends of yours. Maybe you have that friend who... Just when things start to get a little good for you, they slap you right back down so that you never forget it. And when you go down, oh, they'll help you, but first they're going to take a few digs just to make sure that you stay down so they can come in and help you. You ever have a friend like that? Maybe you've had a boss or a coworker like that. Somebody who's in authority over you and has power over you, and they choose to use that power to make you miserable. Working a job that you hate for the people you love and it's all worth it except you show up and this guy or this woman makes it miserable for you. Maybe you've got family that will do this to you. Maybe your parents just were miserable. When something bad happens to you, you don't get any sympathy or affection from your father or your mother. They just try to make you feel bad for feeling bad. Maybe your children will do this to you. Well, that's just what you get for the way you raised me, Mom. You told me, Dad, always just to suck it up, so why don't you suck it up and get off the phone? People will do this to each other. We even can do this in the church. And I strive very, very hard to make sure we are cultivating a, an attitude of grace around here. But there are some people that have had their worst experiences with people in the church. That's unfortunate. But it can be concerning many things. It can be concerning money. When you're broke. You know, I, I know you ladies understand this. I'm not trying to say that you don't. But it is very, very hard for a man to be broke. When David said a minute ago, I'm a worm and I'm not a man, that's how we feel when the money dries up. Now, we need y'all around to say things like, I don't care about that, I love you. But you need to understand, he doesn't feel that way. And there's a lot of male heads going like this right about now, so you know I know what I'm talking about here. And there will be people that will make him feel bad about it. Same way, ladies, perhaps for your looks. As you maybe get older and you mature and you don't look quite like you used to, maybe there are people that will remind you. Maybe you got that one friend who seems to spend all of her time and money trying to look the way she did when she was 25 and she's succeeding and she's letting you know that you're not. Maybe she won't come out and say it aggressively to your face, but she'll find a way to make sure you realize that. Now, guys just kind of, you know, fight it for a while and then we kind of, you know what, all great men are ugly. I can live with this. But <laughs> gentlemen, your wife needs your love and your affection in this way. Or just your failures. You never finished school. Your business collapsed. Your kids never turned out the way you wanted them to. All manner of things. There are people that will come and mock and insult us and be penina in your life. You probably got some names running through your head right about now. This is why Jesus taught us not even to insult each other. And I realize we live in a very sarcastic culture. We do, don't we? But you know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22? If you say to your brother, Raka, you'll be in danger of hellfire. What does Raka mean? Empty head. It's an insult. He said, don't even insult each other. But only, according to Ephesians 4.29, only speak edifying words. Only ever say things that are going to build people up. 
Life is going to beat you down. And Christians need to make sure that we are not piling on those around us. Well, he deserved it. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? Are you going to offer the grace of the Lord Jesus in a moment when he might be ready to hear it? Or are you going to show him that he was right about Christians all along? Don't be Penina. And if you're Hannah, this message is for you today. Verse 9. Remember, they're back in Shiloh here. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, or Eli, it would have been pronounced, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Ever weep bitterly? And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, that's a very Semitic way of speaking, is talking about yourself in the third person. She's the servant here. Do not forget your servant. That's her, okay? But will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. <laughs> now the pastor saw her praying. Let's see how he responds. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went to her way, the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. We find Hannah at Shiloh, or Shiloh would have been pronounced then. And I actually have a picture here for you of what modern day Shiloh looks like. Uh, this is where they would have pitched the tabernacle. It says temple here. This would have been the tabernacle, the tent that Moses designed. This, by the way, is one other key that we have that this would have been written during the time where the temple existed, that they're just kind of used to writing the temple, perhaps. But this is where it would have been in Shiloh. They set up the tabernacle in Shiloh in Joshua 18, verse 1. That's where it was all through the book of Judges. And it's still there. And Eli is the priest here. Every time they went up to worship, this seemed to have been the worst possible time for Hannah. So it shows you that Elkanah was a godly man, although he was kind of a knucklehead, as I said, that they went and worshiped to all the feasts as they were supposed to during the time of the judges. It's a rare thing. But every time they go, the celebration, it's Christmas time, Thanksgiving, we might say, and she makes her miserable for not having any children. Oh, Hannah, you're so lucky. You don't have to corral all of your children. You're so lucky. You don't have to pay for sacrifices for all the kids that you don't have. And she just couldn't take it anymore one day. She went to the sanctuary and it says she wept bitterly. You can just picture convulsions, unable to speak, just worn out before the Lord, ugly crying in the presence of God and praying. And in her prayer, she says, Lord, I just want one son, just one, just just to shut her up, right? Just to bring an end to my shame. And if you do, she says, no razor will touch his head. She says, like Samson, he will be a Nazarite his whole life. Numbers chapter six tells us what the Nazarite vow was. You would let your hair and your beard grow. You wouldn't touch any dead things and make yourself unclean. And you would not drink any wine or grapes or anything that came from the fruit of the vine. So in your pictures of Samuel, you need to have his, him also with his long hair and his long beard. 
She says, I'm going to give him to you as a sacrifice, meaning I'm going to let him be a perpetual servant in your house. I don't even need to raise this kid. Just let me have one. Let my shame be taken away from me. She no longer desires a son for his own sake or even her own sake, but to lift the shame of her status. Now we could be all preachy here and say, you shouldn't care what people think about you. Well, the simple fact is when people act badly towards you, it's hard. And when things happen to you that are difficult and hard and it's shameful and embarrassing, that's not easy to walk through. And she's praying for that. And guess what? God's going to listen to her, by the way. So have you ever been to that moment when you're truly desperate? We love to talk about being desperate in the church, and we should. But have you ever come to the place where you realize there is not a thing I can do? I am completely sunk. I'm out of options. I've played every card that I have. We were playing a board game yesterday at the house with the kids, and we were trying to plan out our last few turns, and we came to the very sad conclusion, there's no way we can win. <laughs> if we had one more turn, maybe we could win. But, oh, well, let's just finish the game. Well, let's take it a little more seriously. Have you ever come to that place in life? I have some moves I can make, but none of them are going to make any difference. I've tried everything. I've done everything. I've called everybody, and there's nothing to be done. That's desperation. Then when you begin to pray, it takes on a whole different character. So you can imagine then how hard it must have been for her to be there praying in the temple or tabernacle, weeping before the Lord, and she's not even making sound out of her mouth. She's playing, praying in her heart, but she's groaning before the Lord. And there's Eli watching her. This drunk woman is coming to God's hold. Well, it's not going to happen while I'm around. And he marches up, lays his hand on her. And maybe she thinks, oh, the priest is going to say something nice. And he goes, would you get up out of here and quit being drunk? Put your wine away from you. <laughs> thinks he's doing the right thing. I think just about everybody who feels called to ministry has had a moment where you've done one of these, where you've said the wrong thing because you didn't understand the situation. And then you find out and you go, Oh, man, I have a pastor friend. This is a little different. It's not so spiritual, but uh, who very kindly asked a woman when her child was to be born, who was not with child. <laughs> and to which he responded, well, you look young enough to be pregnant. <laughs> she said, nice try and never came back. So lesson learned, I guess. Don't even ask. You need a notarized letter before you even start to talk about that, man. But man. Can you imagine? You're at the lowest of the low. People have been beating you down, and now even the priest thinks something's wrong with you. Psalm 3, another Psalm of David, says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Let's put this in 2024 language. God, everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God which is the message that is unintentionally, but is still being sent to Hannah. Even God can't help you. Because you show up to pray, pour out your heart to the Lord, make an amazing vow to God, and the man of God shows up and rebukes you for it. It's miserable when we struggle in our flesh for a long time. Before we come to the Lord, and we're still trying to figure out the next turn, right, the next play. We'll do all manner of things to alleviate our difficult situations. We do research, you know, we go online and we try to find out how are other people solving this problem. We try to talk to other people and, and get them involved. We try to scheme, we try to find a new pill, we try to find a new financial way of doing things, we try to find a new career for us to follow, we try to find a new relationship hack that's going to solve everything. That's a miserable experience, isn't it? 
When you've got a difficulty and you're trying thing after thing after thing after thing to fix it and nothing's working and you go from one epiphany to the next, I finally found the thing. Oh, no, that's not it. No, this time I've really found it. That's a miserable experience because the ups and the downs will kill you. So when we finally then turn to the Lord for help, you better believe there's going to be opposition. You better believe that. Because we are not living in a world that is spiritually uninhabited. We believe in God, and God wants the best for you. But you also have a violent and personal enemy who despises you and wants to keep you miserable. So that when you finally start to reach out to God, there's going to be opposition, even from quarters where you should be expecting help. Because the devil and your flesh resent calling upon God. The devil resents it because he hates God and he hates you and he knows that God will help you. But your own flesh will resent it because now I've got to be this helpless guy calling upon God to help me like some pathetic punk. I'm my own man. I do my own thing. I'm a strong, independent woman. I don't need anybody, not even God. So when you say, I've got to turn to the Lord... We will find people will arise in our lives. It might not be in person. It could be online. It could be in a book you read who will tell you that by calling out to God, you're foolish. What, do you think God's just going to jump in and fix things? Or that you're sinful? You just need to learn to accept the way things are and stop asking God to change things. Or that you're unworthy. You don't deserve this. Yeah, God helps people. But who are you? Why would God help you? Look at you. God clearly has already made his opinion clear on your life. So what are you doing asking for help? But can I tell you, friends, when you start to experience that, when you've hit rock bottom and you start to turn to God and you start to find opposition to that, that is the sign that you are almost there. That's the sign that the victory is almost won. Do you know why? Because Satan will choose anything for your life other than prayer. Let them scheme, let them try, let them labor, let them rant and rave against me, I don't care. Just don't let them call upon the Lord. Satan is always working to pull the plug on prayer in the church. Because he knows if he can stop his people from praying, that they'll fall. Because all of our power doesn't come from us, it comes from the Lord. You read through the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, it all ends with, a, with an action, which is what? praying always and at all times in the Spirit. Kind of double always there that Paul gives us. Calling out to God. That means if Satan has done everything to stop you from praying, maybe you've been praying all along. You've been trying everything. You've been trying different treatments to help this. And Hannah's found, maybe she was trying to have mandrakes like Leah did. Or maybe there was some old wives' tale she was chasing down. Or maybe she found some healer that said she could help. And she was praying to God the whole time and there was no problem. But now that she's completely given up on any other solution and is truly trying out to God, now the opposition comes. Which means she's almost there. Eli, <laughs> I think the best word for Eli was bumbling. He was a bumbling fool. He was not so ungodly as we read this story. He was foolish, but he was not unkind. When you realize his mistake, and how do you think he felt about that? I kind of know how he felt because I've done this sort of thing before. Not to this degree, thankfully. But he, he blesses her. He says, I am so sorry. But I pray that the Lord gives you whatever you're asking. Because if you're going to pray to this degree, if you're willing to be a fool for the Lord, if you're willing to give up even being dignified to seek his face, then may the Lord grant to you the request that you've asked. Because Eli knew, as Hannah did, who, by the way, went away and her face was no longer sad. 
They knew that God does listen to us, especially when we're brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Eli knew that if she's truly calling out to God, God's listening. And she knew that too. And she got the affirmation and comfort that she needed because something is in motion now that if God truly hears his people, he's heard this. So now she can walk away and say, it's out of my hands now. It's in God's hands. And his hands are much more capable than mine, aren't they? Well, let's get on. Let's see what happened. Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. That's great. Don't ever withhold worship from God because you're upset with how your life is going. That's just a losing battle. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. That's his way of saying, all right, that's what you think is best, but we're not going to skip out on our commitment to the Lord. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. So she's got a, a burnt offering, a grain offering, and a drink offering. And she brought them to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. He's three years old. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, meaning Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah conceived. She had a son. And it seems like it didn't, didn't take long that God answered. God alone opens and closes the womb, the Bible tells us. Genesis 30, verse 2, Jacob, uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, similar situation. He had two wives. One of them was having children. One of them was not. But Rachel was a different character than Hannah. She wasn't about to go to God and pray. She just was going to get in her husband's face and whine at him about it. To which he says, am I in the place of God to open and close the womb? And through that little reaction, we get some theology that God is the one who opens and closes the wombs, not us. Now, the baby's name in Hebrew was Shemuel. Shemuel. Many places you maybe come across a fellow named Shmuel. That's, that's also how it could have been written and pronounced. And it means heard by God. The Shema. You know what the Shema is, right? That's that famous passage in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the word for hear, Shema. And El means God. So Shemuel means heard by God. It's passive, as in, I have been heard by God. And that's his name. And for three years, she raises this boy at home. Why? Well, she's not going to have him for very long. And also, she wants to make sure that when she hands him off to the priest, that the priest no longer has any kind of maternal duties to take care of this little man. She brings up the appropriate sacrifice. She handed him over to Eli the priest. The idea being, Eli, this is yours now. You can keep this boy, raise him up in the tabernacle as a servant for you, as a helper for you. Whatever you can use him for, I gave him to God. Now you can take him. 
And that's what she did. She gave away her child. It is key to see here that she kept her promise to God. The Bible tells us it is better to not make a promise to God than to promise and then back out on it. Many times we do that. We say, oh, Lord, please, if you get me out of this, I'll go to church every week as long as I live. And then guess what? You get out of it and you go, oh, well, great. I guess I didn't need to pray after all. It was all just going to work out. So I guess I don't have to go to church anymore or whatever the thing might be. Well, I was just a kid. I was desperate. God didn't, didn't count that. Don't be too sure, friends. We often renege on our promises. And can I say very gently, it might be that that's why God is not answering your prayer. You know, you're making all sorts of promises and vows, and Lord, I'll do that. But he knows, no, because the second I give it to you, you're going to forget about this whole conversation, and you're going to be worse off than you were before. Now, the name of this baby boy, who, of course, is going to grow, go on to be a great prophet. Some people even call him the greatest of the prophets. Here's the lesson. God hears you. Shemuel, God listens. God is listening to you now. What distinguishes God from the false idols is that he listens. God listens to us. I've been to Nepal. I've seen the idolatry that still goes on there. Guess what? The statues don't talk. They might be beautiful, made of gold and covered with jewels and bedazzled and flags hanging off them. And guess what? They just sit there. You got to dust them. You got to get up there and wipe them off. You got to make sure that no birds are making a nest in Buddha's ear or something like that. Our God is different. He listens. Not only does he listen, he takes action on our behalf. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Isaiah says, out of all the gods in all the world, the only one who listens and acts for his people is Jehovah God, Yahweh. You know, it's funny because people tend to assume that what Christians believe about God, other religions believe about God too. It's simply not the case. For example, in Islam, don't you dare ask Allah for anything. He's going to do what he wants. You better just get used to it. You can ask, but just kind of step out of his way when he shows up. Other religions, about, it's all about bribing the gods. And maybe they'll do something nice, or maybe they'll just show up and, and destroy your life. It could go either way. But the Lord God answers the prayers of his people. And this is the New Testament also, 1 John 5, 14 through 15. This is the confidence. Do you have confidence in prayer when you come to God? Can you describe your attitude in prayer as confident? Sometimes we think it's spiritual to be like, oh, Lord, I, I know you don't want to listen to me because I'm just little old me. Well, that's not how John said. John said, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And we can walk out of that tabernacle like Hannah with a smile on her face, even though the prayer has not been answered yet. Because God hears and God answers. I mean, more so now that Christ has ascended, right? Jesus said, when I ascend to the Father, you are going to ask in my name. He says, you've never done this before. Nobody's ever prayed in Jesus' name, amen. But now you're going to start praying in my name. And if God always hears me, he said, God's always going to hear you. This means that when you cry out in desperation, God hears you. He notices your life. God cares about you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. 
You are not some speck on a speck in the dust of the universe. God loves you with an everlasting love. He knows your heart. He knows your cares. He knows your flaws and he knows your successes. And he cares about you deeply. When you speak to him, he listens. What kind of father, when the kid walks up crying, daddy, 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 is going to say, get out of my face. I don't notice you. I don't know who you are. You're one. Yeah, you're a kid. Well, there's millions of kids. The child has a right to expect dad to listen because I'm your kid. You're my father. And isn't God our father? Some of you in this room have been crying to God for a long time. And I don't know what it is exactly. You do. God wants you to know today that he is listening to you. Sometimes we pray, and as it says, it feels like the heavens are brass. Our prayers just bouncing off the ceiling. That's never true. God always hears. He's listening. And God is a vindicator of his people. How do you think Penina felt after Hannah finally had this child? Imagine the look on Hannah's face the next time they showed up. Like, oh, you got anything to say now? <laughs> God wants the best for you. Don't doubt that God's love is towards you. You know, we can, it's very easy to say, God loves us. God loves the world. God loves you. He loves me. As an individual, he loves us and he cares about us. And he wants the best for us. Well, verses 1 through 10, Hannah wrote a song. So where do we get this from? Samuel probably had it <laughs> from when his mom wrote it. Well, Hannah prayed and said, by the way, when you read this psalm, you got to hear some of the trash talk in this. Knowing her situation, this kind of reads like somebody that just won the championship when everybody doubted they could do it. Let's just, just hear this out. My heart exalts in the Lord. What does exult mean? Yes! That's exulting. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Talking about her sister wife. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And now this is probably aimed at Penina. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. That's a song about her rival that God put in the Bible. <laughs> she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor, which Samuel would. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Again, this is a psalm. This is Hebrew poetry. You can probably see the formatting in your Bible that this was poetry. And you can probably recognize some of this if you know Luke chapter 1, Mary's song, the Magnificat, which I would expect deliberately took a lot of inspiration from this song. That there was another miraculous birth that was going to mean the exaltation of Israel. 
what we see in these first three verses, she's just exalting God for what he's done and deriding her enemies. Deriding her enemies. When you see the, you know, the buzzer finally sounds and the championship team is out there celebrating, it's always really funny when you see the away team win the championship game. When the Washington Nationals won the World Series in 2019, happiest day of my life. Um, we were all, everybody was asleep and I woke the whole house up. It was amazing. But they won in Houston, which just was so special to me because the Astros are dirty, rotten cheaters. And they were there in the World Series. But there they are. There's a great picture. They're all piling in the middle of the field. And you can see the whole crowd is just like this. It's just something special about when you win in your enemy's face, right? And that's what Hannah is saying here. I deride my enemies. She talks a lot about Penina's mouth in this one. Do you notice that? It's you and your big mouth. Well, here's what my mouth has to say. Derision. That's what I have. You might say, this doesn't feel very spiritual. Friend, it's in your Bible. All right? Because God had vindicated her. Don't talk so proudly or arrogantly. And it also seems that perhaps Penina was even speaking against God's ability to help Hannah. And now she's saying, now, now look what's gone on. Verse 4 and 5, she declares this, this reversal, that the mighty have been broken and the feeble put on strength, that you were the one that had a bunch of children, and I was barren, but guess what? Now I had a son. And we actually know that Hannah is going to have other children as well. This is not the last child she's going to have. And in verse 6 through 9, she puts it all back in God's hands. And she reminds Penina and us that, hey, look, this has nothing to do with you or me. This is God that does this. God is the one who exalts and puts down. God is the one that raises up kings and rulers. He's the one who puts down kings and rulers. He makes one man's life go up and another goes down. It has nothing to do with you or me. It is God's providence at work. Who are we to try to call the shots when God can do anything. He says, he raises the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. I've been saying this phrase a lot lately, but you don't know what part of the story you're at. Don't call it over until it's done. And verse 10 is amazing because it looks forward to the great judgment. Like it, it exalts beyond her situation and it rises up to the level of eschatology, talking about when God will break to pieces his adversaries and his thunder will come and judge the earth and give strength to his king and exalt the anointed. There was no king at this time. There was no king in Israel, which tells us that Hannah is functioning prophetically here. Because her son, Samuel, is going to be the one who will anoint both of the first two kings of Israel and raise up a dynasty that God promised to David is going to last forever and ever, even down to our Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all, this is how God deals with people. God loves to take people who are down in the dust and raise them up. He acts for those who call on him. And those who act wickedly and arrogantly will be struck down. God gives grace to the humble but he embarrasses the proud. That's why we should never be walking around with a bunch of arrogance, a bunch of spiritual swagger. Like, hey man, this is all God. In the midst of our darkest hours, we can forget this. We can forget that that's the character of our Lord, but these lessons ought to give us great hope, especially if you're in Hannah's situation now, crying out for God to help you. He's listening. Verse 11, we finish up. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. 
Well, this sets the stage for the rest of the story in which Samuel is going to be our first major character. And he's going to be around for most of this first book. We're going to have Samuel. We're going to move on to Saul and Jonathan. And we're going to move on to David. And he's going to take up pretty much the rest of the book of Samuel. But this is a very happy story. I heard from several of y'all when we were going through Ruth. We were like, I loved Ruth. It was just a nice, happy little book. And yeah, it is that. Because sometimes, you know, we go through Revelation. Revelation is great, but it's not exactly a picnic. You know what I mean? <laughs> Read about demon locusts and all that stuff. But here's another happy story. God loves to help people. And some of you might need that because of your situation. To remember that that's who our God is. To remind you that God is listening. And you shouldn't give up on him. You shouldn't give up. Because that's a temptation. That you'll be seeking the Lord. And you'll be right about to prevail. And you say, well, I just can't pray for one more minute. Well, Luke 18. I'm not going to read the whole parable. But it says that in Luke 18, Jesus told them a parable. To the effect... Meaning, whatever the meaning of this parable is, here's the moral. They ought always to pray and not lose heart or never give up. That's the story of the unjust judge where the widow was coming to him for help day and night. And finally, she bothered him so much. He just said, fine, take what you want. Well, verse 7, Jesus says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is saying God answers prayers. He answers prayers speedily. He does what is right for his people. But then he says, but will they have faith? Meaning, are they going to believe that if you keep on asking, you will receive? I wonder, though, if perhaps you've actually prayed. Have you actually prayed? Coming to that place of desperation where you give up on all other solutions and just cry out to Jesus. Or are you just praying for God to bless your action plan that you came up with yourself? So something wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with being wise and having a plan and putting things together and trying out different solutions. But many times prayer is just a formality. You say, God, here's what I'm going to do and I'd really like it if you made it work out. Instead of coming to God and say, Lord, I'm desperate and I need your help. What do you want from me? There's a difference between praying and then acting and deciding on a course of action and then throwing in a prayer at the last second. Sometimes we come to God and say, Lord, if you help me, I would love that. But if not, well, I'll find a way. I'll find somebody. I've heard people say things like, well, God couldn't help me, so I tried out other religions and other things, other ways of life. Never heard that story end happily, by the way. Some of us need to stop striving. I can point to many moments in my life where I have been at the moment of just about to quit. I've just, I, I can't do this one more minute. There's been several of these moments coming down here and planting the church. I've never been in a moment where I was actually ready to hang it up, but it was brought to that moment of, God, what, is, what are we doing? What is going on here? And it's in that, that bottom moment where you just realize, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. You kind of feel like Elijah when he's praying to the Lord and he says, I am no better than my father's. God, I'm not special. I'm not unique. I'm, I'm as desperate as anybody else. Please help me. And that's the moment where you feel God say, all right, now we're going. Now we can do this. The trick is to stay in that place, even when times get better, even when things elevate and you're happy again, to stay in that place of utter desperation before God. If you're ready to go all in, then you're ready to receive the answer to your prayer. When you say, the thing that you're going to give me, Lord, this child you're going to give me, I don't even hold on to it for myself. 
I'm just asking for your help. And I think God wants to answer some of your prayers today. God wants some of you to walk out of this room today with the same kind of assurance that Hannah had when she left that tabernacle. I'm trying my best to not be like Eli and rebuke you for being drunk in church. (laughs) Just to tell you that God loves you and he wants to answer your prayers. Don't be discouraged. God is listening to you. Consider the situation that Israel was in. There was no king. There were roving bands of raiders that were attacking people and stealing their stuff. And there was all manner of sexual and violent deviance around the nation. The Philistines were attacking and all the other nations were surrounding them. And they were crying out, God, you've got to help us. Well, God was listening to them too. Because Samuel was going to be the one God would use to bring about the deliverance, to bring about the monarchy and the line of David, which we are still putting our hope in to this day. God raises up and puts down, not us. The wicked are struck down and the righteous are exalted. And you are God's child in Christ Jesus. So don't give up. Keep calling to the Lord. Stop striving because God is listening to you.